We're sitting here in Forest Row at the lovely home of Bob Wills, who is kindly hosting a recording that we're making about issues of access to land, succession of farm ownership, and bringing farms into community ownership. And Bob is joined by John Thompson, who has been involved through his connection with Emerson College, which was the original owner of Tablehurst Farm. So welcome to you both gentlemen. And um, I'd like to start perhaps by asking you, Bob, what was going on at the time when Tablehurst Farm started to come into community ownership? Who were the people involved? Well, the um, problems I think that Emerson had with running the farm, and John would know more about it than me really, is that uh, it wasn't quite their scene and it was actually a drag on them and, you know, they really were concerned about the future. And then the question arose as to how the farm could be developed in the future. And... Fortunately, Christopher Mann, who was one of the people... Well, he actually started St Anthony's Trust in 1972. Christopher is the son of William Mann. Christopher's father was always very interested, and he became a trustee, actually. I see, OK. Um, and the thing is that, um, going back in time, originally St Anthony's Trust was formed for another purpose... But later it came into the lap of um, St Anthony's Trust, partly because of the great interest of William Mann, who I think would, if he hadn't been a teacher, he would like to have been a farmer. Uh, he was very, very keen on the land, and uh, and his son also inherited this and was also very keen on the biodynamic uh, scene. And in fact, Christopher went to America and started uh, a very interesting farm there. But coming back to the point that you raised about when Tablehurst came in, it was a very long-winded process, but finally the day came when the bulk of the land was passed over St. Anthony's Trust. And um, we then had the uh, problem of running the farm with very little capital, of course. And uh, the... Fortunate thing is that we had a lot of support from the community, and I think I'm right in saying that the co-op was already in existence then, and so that was of enormous benefit. So then the farm, like the one a plaw hatch where we already had some experience because we'd taken that on as a failing entity, and by many miracles managed to keep it afloat and going well and so we already had some experience in biodynamic farming and supporting it and uh, I, I don't know how much more you want me to say about what happened with Tablehurst at the beginning perhaps John would like to say well, something yeah I'd, I'd like to come in and say it wasn't an accident that a college an international college should be linked with a farm Edmonds who founded Emerson College had the idea there should be a connection between teaching, farming, and medicine. The doctor, the farmer, and the teacher have got to deal with each other. And so when the opportunity came of buying 
Emerson, the adjacent farm was just ideal for his aims. And so that was why this connection came about. It was not just an accident, it was quite purposeful. He always regretted that he never brought the medical element in to this threesome. And when I joined, and that was in 81, so the thing had been going for already nearly 15 years or something. And I could see that the Emerson run by a college of teachers, basically, with a finance manager, and uh, also the farmer. They were all part of the council. And so what began to develop is that it was felt a good thing that students coming from all over the world should experience the land. So it eventually turned out that they were going out for picking potatoes or something that was urgent that the farm needed help in. And I can remember very well how one of my colleagues who was also in the teaching was beginning to resent that 30 or 40 people coming to Emerson to learn about teaching should suddenly be pulled out of their studies to go and pick potatoes. And so the, the working together didn't, didn't quite emerge as it was intended. But it was really a great idea. And it's still an idea because you can see that uh, what's happening in the schools, they're very concerned about food and diet and all these things which are produced by farmers. And so it's not a wrong idea, but it wasn't implemented in the right way because the people who were making decisions about the farm were people who knew nothing about farming except the farmer himself. And he was really looking for help rather than for guided cooperation. So the good idea didn't work out. But it's still a good idea, if I can put it like that. I always felt that we should separate ourselves from the direction of the farm. But the farmer at that time was very dependent on the college because there were few funds and some of the building that went on in the farm, I think, was capitalized by the college. And so there was things that seemed to me quite inappropriate and should be sorted out. So when the idea came that the, the farmer decided to retire, and a new phase was coming in, then the issue came up, we separate the farm from the college. Now there was much resentment in the college because uh, it was a big capital asset, this large farm, and so the college might go through quite difficult times where we always have the backup of this. So the farm was then seen as a support, a possible support for a financial situation that the college might face. And so there were difficulties, psychological difficulties, in really bringing about this separation. And in fact, from the moment of declaring that that's what we wanted to do, it took 10 years, I think, for the college actually to bring about this separation. Yes. Bob, can you remember who were the leading players at that time in the decision to separate the college from the farm? Well, I can remember well. Actually, the, the final phase was three years, actually, the final phase in, in passing. Yes, I know, but the decision to do that... The was... decision was made ten years before, yeah. altogether, that's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and uh, in, in a way, it was very interesting to think back to those days shortly after we took over the ownership of the land and buildings from Emerson... And Brown convened a very interesting meeting in the Rachel Carson Centre, which I'd like to bring up because it was convened to bring the three parties together. That's the farmers, 
the farm business, this is the co-op, and St Anthony's Trust. And we had a very, very interesting man who was uh, called a facilitator that Brown found, a man with very clear, precise, accurate thinking. He wasn't actually anything to do with biodynamic farming, but he was obviously uh, very good at convening people together. And so he asked us to sit in three parts of the room separately, write our personal um, selfish motives, and then they were brought together. And it turned out that we all fundamentally had the same thing at heart, and that was the success of the farms. This was very clear. But what did come out of it, which I found was so interesting, because I'm very keen on the idea of people working together. Some of the big problems in the world really centre around this working together. And here was an opportunity, because the farms in some senses could be seen as being in competition with each other. But it was decided at this meeting that for the future, there would be no and never ever any hidden agendas from any one of the three groups. And also that any one of the meetings that, say, the co-op had or St. Anthony had or the farmers had would always be open to anybody from any of the other things. I found very interesting. And as far as I know, that's really worked. A major uh, player in this was Peter Brown because it was quite clear to Emerson that when he came on the scene, he was the right man to build the farm. And he insisted that it was taken out of the hands of Emerson. And that was a major decision. And then out of that, what you mentioned, the co-op was formed, which was an industrial providence society, really, which um, took control of the business side. St. Anthony's was intended to take control of the land side, and then the farmers would be working under the umbrella of the co-op to do their actual job of farming and build their teams. And I think that's worked very well. So we'd have to spell it out more carefully than we're doing now, but it's a kind of model that could be exercised and practiced all over the place. But it's something that's, as Bob says, has really evolved here and has worked extremely well. Oh, uh, you said that um, <coughs> Brian was instrumental. Is that is that Brian Infield or uh, Brian Swain? Brian, Brian Swain. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, he was then uh, very active in the co-op. I believe. Yeah, he was a prime mover in yes. building a co-op. Yes, that's right. There yes. were other people as well, but he played a major yes, role. That's right. Yes. And yeah. of course, it's his brother John who is responsible for these recordings. <laughs> well, yes. uh, I mean, that's okay. And in fact, to to um, interview Brian would be a very positive thing because he, I think, has a lot to say and he's got very strong ideas about uh, the whole question of land ownership, for example, which is a crucial one, which we spoke about on the way here. Uh, unless something is done about the value of land, which is just a, a market product at the moment, then a lot of problems can't be solved. Yes. So, Bob, when you were first involved, was that as a trustee of St Anthony's Trust? Yes, it was. St Anthony's Trust was formed for another purpose, actually. The uh, reason that we got into the biodynamic farming was that Plorhatch Farm was at the point of being wound up and dispensed with, and... Uh, Christopher Mann's father, who was one of my fellow trustees, 
was immensely keen that this shouldn't happen. In fact, all the trustees were very keen that this should happen. So it was very interesting how it was saved because William Mann, that's uh, Christopher's father, went with another colleague of mine called Daniel Donahay. They went to Germany to interview um, a Stiftung, who I think were quite a wealthy sort of set-up in the computer industry and very keen on supporting biodynamic farms. And they came back with enough money for us to buy Plaw Hatch. So that saved the day, which was really quite a thing, because I think the recording we're making at the moment is interested, isn't it, in how the money was arrived at to buy farms. This came from really a gift, but it was only because they took the initiative quite strongly and went to Germany to do it. They didn't try doing it over the phone or writing or anything. They, and that really does work. And funny enough, they have since then still supported Tablehurst yes. in another activity, and we've got to know them. And I feel that uh, possibly for the future, this is one very important aspect to look at in trying to raise money. The other great help we've had, of course, is on Christopher himself, because he was very well off. His uh, wife was uh, one of the original, uh, well, the daughter of the founder of a very, very big company in Germany. And Christopher used to come over and uh, we had chat together. And he said, how are things going? I said, well, Plaw Hatch desperately needs a new entrance, Christopher. Can you help? And so he did. He paid for that. And then that revolutionised the farm because before the entrance was extremely dangerous and uh, was holding back the business. And he helped in many other ways as well because... Emerson didn't actually pass over all the land to St Anthony's Trust and Christopher was very keen that the one or two fields at the bottom and one at the top should also be owned by St Anthony's Trust so they weren't sold and it should be part of Tablehurst Farm. So I won't go into all the details of how this worked but it was finally, uh, I got very much involved in this actually because St Anthony's actually had to find some of the money ourselves because Christopher got to the point where he said well you find half, I'll find half and we managed to do it by miracles actually when I think back how, how it worked so actually Tablehurst now has virtually the best part of all the land for, for the farming So John, when Emerson was thinking about separating itself from the farm I get the impression that Francis Edmonds, who was heading up Emerson at the time and the founder of Emerson, he had this concept of a community of gifts, I've heard. Can you say anything about that? Yeah. I think that phrase runs through all his thinking. So that when he gathered together to found Emerson College... A lot of his colleagues were very sceptical that this was going to take off. And so up in the Midlands, an opportunity arose and he got some huts to start. And then he didn't set it up in a top-down, but he looked for somebody who could bring art into it. He looked for somebody who could bring science into it. He looked for somebody who could bring the crafts into it, and so on. And I think that's what he meant. It's people who have gifts, have come together 
and through their interaction and with students coming, they meet something. They meet people who have got something to share, and I think that's what he meant. So there was nothing exclusive. Eventually became very strongly a teacher training college, but that wasn't at the beginning. It was because Michael Hall actually invited him to come here and then build the teacher training. Uh, but for Edmonds, it was essentially people coming from who'd already got into life. They weren't just students coming at 19 or 20. They'd already been they were lawyers or whatever, and they thought they wanted a change in life. And so they would meet this community of gifts of people who had got somewhere in their particular discipline, and that encounter would spark off for them either a change in life or a reinvigoration in what they were doing. I think that's the big idea behind Edmund's thinking. Yes, but it must have been quite a quite an altruistic gesture on behalf of the college to pass over one of its major assets yeah. to the co-op. How yes. did that come about? Well, Edmunds had already died. He died in 89, is that right? Mm. And he had already, his connection with the direction of the college had greatly loosened. He was still there and still a, an important voice. But when he died, then Michael Spence was uh, the the bursar, and he, like um, well, as what I've explained, I think he said uh, more or less the same view, that it would be good to reinvigorate the farm by giving it its own chief. And when Peter Brown appeared on the scene, he was the man. So things came together. There was a shift in the thinking, and then the man appeared. If the man hadn't appeared, the shift in the thinking wouldn't have got anywhere. That's very interesting. Yeah. Was there any opposition within Emerson itself to this move? Well, I withdrew from about the time that the farm was passed over. What was that to you, 95 or something? Mm, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, 96, I think. 96. Well, that was the year I moved yeah. out. Right. So I don't want to talk about the people who were then subsequently in charge because I think there were divided views, you know, and nobody was quite sure that this is what we should do, but they were unhesitant about making the change. Funnily enough, while we were having lunch today at Emerson, we were sitting next to a, a veteran of those days, and she happened to say, uh, oh, we, we shouldn't have given away the farm. Yeah. And I said to her, well, mm. if you hadn't done that, it wouldn't be here now. Yeah. So... I know who said that, and she called about giving away the family silver. Uh-huh. That was her expression. Yeah. And it was just the family silver. But the Biden was not just family silver. And I could see that with Peter, this was something that was vibrant, could, could develop. So we did the right thing. But it was a slow psychological process rather than a, an administrative process. Yes, yes. And Bob, can you recall what it was like at the time when the co-op was forming? Was there a lot of enthusiasm in local people to do this? Well, there's a tremendous enthusiasm from St Anthony's Trust, and I'll tell you why. Uh, before the co-op was formed, not only owned Plawhatch Farm buildings and land, but we also owned the farm business, and that wasn't our scene. And uh, it was really a very difficult time. We had very difficult times then, 
And so when the idea of a community-owned farm financially was spread around and came to birth was wonderful for St Anthony's Trust because already we felt now we can concentrate on what we intended doing in the first place and try and do it well and then the financial side will be in a completely different sphere and we felt really pleased about the co-op and how it worked. So when did St Anthony's hand over Plaw Hatch to the co-op? Because you were, oh, you were responsible well, for Plaw Hatch, pr- weren't you? Prior to, well prior to Tablehurst, of course. Uh-huh. I'm not quite sure the actual date. But it was only the business that was handed The land at mm. Plaw Hatch and the land yes. at Tablehurst and the part of the land at Emerson yes. is owned by St Anthony's Trust. Yes. That's right. So it's quite an interesting thing, you see, to get the business out. So if a business collapses... There's no collateral for it. You don't sell up the land. That's one of the significant things about this. So the land is safe in perpetuity? Well, Mm. to a certain extent. I mean, a a new trust body 20 years down the road might change that uh, perspective, but as it stands today, that's how it is, yeah. If the business fails, then it doesn't involve the uh, support of the land. We had an interesting interview with Peter Brown earlier today, and during that I asked him whether the concept of community had altered at all over the years since he first became involved. And I wonder how you feel about that. How has this idea of a community-owned farm evolved from mid-1990s to today? Well, I think if you go and look at Tablehurst today, you see a tremendous enthusiasm for what goes on there and uh, all sorts of activities. Hmm. And, um, for instance, the other day we went to buy some stuff there and we had to wait in a queue with two serving and so they are immensely busy. And it was a really good feeling because around the corner was the little cafe with people sitting at the table. And then up on the bank, Peter Brown developed this play area for children you know it's got a good feeling about it and uh, also of course the support they get in actual work on the land from the community is quite good I believe I haven't been involved myself but people will volunteer to help on the farm which is very nice to know but one of the problems I think that uh, St Anthony's has and we're not quite sure how to finalise this, is the question of the importance of holding the land in perpetuity and taking it out of the commercial sphere. But at the same time, we actually have used the assets and values of St Anthony's in the form of the land, etc., as a security for raising money for buildings and so on. And that is something that uh, we feel, I think, and John will back me up, this is a temporary arrangement. We would like to eventually get out of this situation where we're actually, in fact, using the land as an asset to raise money. It doesn't really quite feel right, but we thought an awful lot about this, and I was very concerned, and I spoke to many people uh, who are involved in the anthroposophical world, and it turned out that the thought was that you work with the time 
and that at this time this was quite a good thing to do but in the long term try and get out of this am mm. i i'm right in saying that john uh, yeah i think that's yeah. where the discussion mm. is but of course well we see what's happening you know in, in the cities and so on that uh, the people who work there can't live there and, <laughs> and the people who don't live there <laughs> can buy the houses it's unbelievable and uh, the American Henry George in the middle of the 19th century already saw the problem. I don't know how well known he is, but that's uh, how you've got to deal with the land problem. And so this is little communities trying to deal with that in a notion which is totally ignorant about the problem, or seems to be. Not entirely, of course. But uh, the other thing, I think, when the farmers passed over to, and they began this development of the co-op, then the shop started, and these are a very important economic element in the, what we call the farm. It's the farm and the business of direct selling. And that plays, I don't know the, the actual details in the balance sheet, but it's a very important element, which wasn't there at all in the old Emerson Tablehurst arrangement. Well, as far as I understand it, both farm shops are reporting quite rapidly increasing turnover. Yeah. So there seems to be real demand from people to come and buy their food from a place where they know how it's grown and they see how the animals are looked after, they know who's growing the food and they feel good about, mm. about buying in such situations. So I think your question about community, there wasn't really a, a community. Uh, the Tablehurst was part of Emerson and Emerson was a college dealing with foreigners. And when Peter took over, a great effort was made to make sure it's, it's a farm in Forest Row and the villagers are part of the clientele and the orientation of the farm totally changed. It wasn't just orientated towards students coming from anywhere, but much more orientated towards the locality. And that's a big, big element in the community. If you're isolated in a community, you're not a community farm. I think Peter and, and also Plo Hatch have done an enormous amount to develop that side. Yes. One thing I was wondering about was um, we've talked about not wanting to use the land as an asset to borrow money against. But how does a community-owned farm, which doesn't have a large profit relative to its sales, how does it raise capital for new infrastructure, new machinery? Have you any thoughts on that? Well, that is the big question. Um, through St Anthony's, considerable legacies have been received, which have been used to develop the farm buildings and so on. A website would be a good move yes. in today's world, so that people who have a certain amount of knowledge, but not a lot about the farms, but are quite um, keen on supporting it, can see through a good website, ways and means at which they can uh, fund. And that's what you have in mind, isn't it, to do this. I think that's a very good step forward. The other thing is that there are other, I call them Stiftungs, because they're often in Germany, but we did actually, uh, when the Rachel Carson Centre was financed, there was a company in Holland. So there are these companies around now who have... um, assets which they can use to support farming 
and uh, maybe um, bring more on board, perhaps. Um, so we need to seek out these philanthropic companies. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. We haven't been very successful in that so far. I That's think. true. And the question of legacies has benefited the college. People and often people who are not directly connected with the whole ideology behind it or ideas, but visited a farm and felt their connection with it and left a part of their legacy to it, and that has greatly benefited the building of the the farms. But um, there's a balance between getting out and putting yourself up with a brand, a Demeter brand that promises this and so on, that doesn't lose its. Uh, you know, what's the word? Sorry? It's integrity, perhaps. Well, it's a bit like that, you know. Yes. Um, and um, and yet, it should be better known. And I've always felt that the background of the farming should be more open and presented in a understandable way that people don't feel you're floating into another realm which we can't understand. So we need to have and our feet need, firmly I don't on the think ground. We need to do that. It's well grounded. There's quite a lot of experimentation being going on that indicates certain things are valuable in growing crops and preparing food. And that's a common discussion everywhere. It's on the media all the time. Our food, what we eat, and what it does to us, and all children are suffering in unbelievable ways today. And some of it is cured by good diet, you know, behavior, all sorts of things. They say prisons change by giving them a good uh, organic diet, you know. Prisoners are different people. So this is out there. And to enter into that debate and that discussion in a positive way is, I think, one of the things we could do. But that itself needs the people who can do it, the, and that certain amount of finance behind it to get it out there in a certain way, in a certain presentation that is coherent with what everybody else is talking about. I've come across recently in America this concept of what they call patient capital, which is where you find investors who aren't looking for large returns on their loans, but are prepared to make a loan at low interest rates mm -hmm. over a period of time. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that's something that we could explore in this country a bit more. There may well be people who, who have some money that they aren't particularly um, needing to get a large return on, but who would like to invest in something that they believe in. Well, my um, changing subject slightly in, in relation to this, always having had my own business and building the business up from nothing, I always had a strong feeling that the business should be self-supporting. I can't help, when I think of the farms, I can't help feeling that I would like the farms as a run to be self-supporting so that any money that comes from outside is used, for example, in buying land and that sort of thing. So if you divide it into two parts, one, the working of the farm itself, I would like to see very strongly that it's organised in such a way with the shop and so on that it is self-sustaining. As a business, it would be good and healthy if it could be self-sustaining. 
Now, that doesn't address the problem of the future of, of, of the farm needing more land or something like that. So that would be more in the area of raising money in the other ways that you've been talking about. Well, it's quite interesting that Tablehurst, which began with the St Anthony's Trust land, now has 14 different landlords because it's renting fields from people in this area who own land. It's an issue for them and the length of the leases they have. But I wonder if you have any thoughts on whether it is important for the farm to actually own the land or whether it's simply a question of working with others in the community to make sure the land is farmed in a particular way. Uh Well, that's a big issue. A big issue. I think the way that Tablehurst has developed by people seeing their needs and offering them a field here and there that they can use on a basis of a lease is a very practical way of moving forward. The ideal way, of course, for a biodynamic farm is that you're sustaining the soil in a certain way so that it endures, you know, it's not going to pass into... Well, it seems that landowners rather like biodynamic farming on their land because they they can see that the land is being well looked after and it's increasing the value of their land. Oh, I see. So it suits them well. Yeah, yeah. Um, But from the farm's point of view, I think they would like to have um, longer-term leases than currently they have. A little example is right on our doorstep. If you step out of here and walk a few yards that way, you'll see a big field over here. And that belongs to a farm who have been keeping that field in um, set-aside for 12 years. And the land's got in a bad way, really, because it's just been weeds all that time. And Tablehurst decided that it would be a good idea to see if they could rent that field and do something worthwhile with it. Originally, I think they were going to have a five-year lease, which wouldn't really be long enough. But it's a good feeling to think that they've enabled themselves to grow in a way without actually purchasing the land if they could get a long lease on it. And uh, already they've planted interesting things to try and regenerate the quality of the soil, which is pretty poor. And uh, they've also had sheep in there. And I thought that's another way of expanding the farm business without the use of vast amounts of capital. What do you think about the problems that young people face these days in terms of gaining access to land to either farm or to create market gardens? Well, these are big issues. It's obviously difficult. I mean, the uh, training colleges are dealing not with farmers but with managers, you know, so that the idea that you go and how do you become a farmer? Because you're already disconnected with the land in a way because you're applying technologies either in the crops you use and the sprays you put on them and the machinery you use and you're at a certain distance from the land and that affects the way you train people to work on the land. So it's already a, a distancing kind of thing happening in agriculture and you go out to a table house, what are the 24 people? something like that, working on their 
And in most other farms, there might be a, a similar farm, there might be three people. So that's a big thing to change. Yes. What about the influence of the supermarkets on this situation? Do you think they will be able to evolve their position or are they going to keep trying to screw farmers down to the smallest prices they can get? Well, that's part of the ongoing debate at the moment. Yeah. And also, see, if you think of a farm as an entity in which it's dealing with its own fertilization process and so on, that's not interesting for a supermarket who wants to get a guaranteed crop of peas or cabbages or whatever from a farm just devoted to that. And then they can get the size they want, the shape they want and so on. And that's guaranteed. Whereas what comes from a farm like this, which can serve a local community, but not easily, I would imagine, a supermarket, because the local community can go along with changes in the weather and things like that that the supermarkets want to avoid, if possible. So it's another big problem. Do you see the model of ownership at Tablehurst and Plaw Hatch as one that is capable of being extended to other situations? Interesting thought. <laughs> That's yeah. certainly the ideas in the co-op, that they have a model which doesn't necessarily be, belong to biodynamic farming. It could be any organic farm could develop the same model because there's a very close, uh, not in the methodology maybe, but a very close sympathy between the organic movement and the biodynamic movement. And I'm sure that this model that we have here could be of value in many quite different situations. Bob, how do you see things developing in the future for these community-owned farms? About the two existing farms, you mean? I was thinking more of the concept. Do you, do you see it as, as something that will appeal to other communities who might want to start similar things? That's a very interesting question, actually. When Just now you mentioned other... Um, ways where this could work were you thinking of outside farming or just in farming i was thinking of farming initially oh initially in farming yeah but it seems as though we've as a society got ourselves into a very difficult position yes um and it's going to take the efforts of communities to move the government's position because they won't do anything without the communities demanding it. That's right, yes. So I'm sort of wondering, is there scope for other communities to do what we're doing here? Hmm. Well, one wonderful thing about the farms is that it gives an opportunity of the community coming together and working together. And it happens to be with farming, but it's a very good concept isn't it that communities can in some ways be brought together and when you question I was then thinking of other areas where the community might come together in a similar way to the way they do with farms and that's given me food for thought <laughs> I think Emerson and also Plohatch are lucky because they're in Forest Row and in Forest Row there are a lot of people who've got ideas not only about food they eat but about education about medicine and all that kind of thing and if you've got a close to you 
a lot of people who have these kind of ideas, then you can thrive as much as it's possible to thrive in that situation. But if you're in a totally alien um, environment where people are just totally turned off from these questions, you're not going to get very far. So it means you have to find places like Forest Row or um, Stroud or somewhere else, you know, where a lot of these ideas are circulating, and then you can plant yourself there, but get too far away and... Yeah, but John, I think the importance would be to um, widen it, wouldn't it? Well, absolutely. You know, to get it out yeah, of this absolutely, um, yeah. connection yeah, yeah. and let people who have no and idea of Steiner's principles or anything yeah, see yeah. how this can work well. That's right. Yeah. I mean, maybe at some time the farms can sell their produce and they have open market days in East Grinstead or in Crowborough or somewhere like that, you see. But at the moment, I think they're just meeting their own needs. They don't have a surplus that they can go out and spread somewhere else. But that kind of way of growing, is uh, that's organic, isn't it? So, Bob and John, we've talked a lot about how things have been as the farms have developed in the past 21 years or so. Um, how do you see the future for young people who are working on the farms now? They come into the farms in great contrast to how things are with conventionally farmed uh, situations. Uh, we've got a lot of young people. We've got young people who are starting families on the farms, and this is very encouraging. But do you think there is enough there to support them right through their lives as their families grow, as the children need educating, and as they come up towards retirement time themselves. What's the situation for these farm workers? Very interesting question, because if you think about the changes that have taken place on the farms, there were no farm shops originally, and that wasn't sustainable. They weren't going to stay in business. And the farm shops came along with a new concept, a new idea. And it was Michael Devine's wife, actually, who was uh, already familiar with starting a farm shop. And she was a great help at Plaw Hatch. And I worked with her, actually. And so there's an example of something that was brought in which raised the whole thing up. Well, maybe we should be looking for other ideas. Obviously, the retailing of your produce is of tremendous help because you're getting a very much better price. And so maybe uh, one aspect for young people today in farming is to develop further something like the farm shops, which brings other activities into the farm rather than relying on just the farm, which I can't quite see how that could, just the farming, would support young people today. So you're thinking of various manifestations of added value. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yes, yes. John, have you got any thoughts on this? I'll give out this thought. It seems to me things are going to get worse in many ways, not better. But I think things getting worse could awaken people to the need for this kind of work and that there'll be social changes coming towards us. We won't have to make them. People will be demanding them. Young people, they can't buy a house now, apparently. So there must be a solution to this, but it's not obvious. Something's going to happen out of that in 10 years, 20 years. Um, the 
discussions we have about the amount of sugar that uh, the big supermarkets refuse to take out of their food and they lie about how much is in it and all that sort of thing, that's getting more and more into the open and people, at least a lot of people, are going to be more and more aware of this. So in that sense, that's when crises are going to come. And I think the kind of farming we're talking about is crisis farming. It's not to a nice, comfortable development that's going to go on with a growingly prosperous society. I don't think it's going to be like that. But that's a very personal position, and I'm not sure everybody will agree with it. Bob and John, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating talking with you. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you.